Chapter 4 of The Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Gladstone's First Parliament. This reformed parliament in which Mr. Gladstone made his first appearance had some very remarkable men in both its chambers. The House of Lords was, of course, entirely unaffected by the changes which had so profoundly altered the character of the representative chamber. Reform does not touch the House of Lords. The right of a man to be a peer consists either in the fact that he is the eldest son of his father who was a peer, or that he is called up to the peerage by the gracious summons of the sovereign. The most conspicuous figure in the House of Lords at the time was that of the Duke of Wellington, the victor of Waterloo. The Duke of Wellington was a consummate soldier. Although he had none of the dazzling genius of the great Napoleon, Napoleon was a man born for conquest and aggression. The Duke of Wellington was the very symbol of cautious and hard-headed resistance. Napoleon was really defeated by himself, and by himself only. The meteor of conquest, as Byron says, allured him too far, and he fell into cureless ruin. The Duke of Wellington held a place in the House of Lords and in the public mind of England which might be considered absolutely unique. He was not a great statesman. He was not, indeed, a statesman at all in the true sense of the word. Apart from his gifts and instincts as a commander, he was not a man of any intellect, but he was a thoroughly honest and disinterested man. It was well known that his life was absolutely devoted to the service of his sovereign and his country. His bitterest enemy never imputed to him a sordid or even a selfish motive. He had good sense enough to see who were the men upon whom, from his own point of view, he could best rely for guidance. Sir Robert Peel was then and forever after one of those men. The influence of the Duke of Wellington in the House of Lords was always, of course, a Tory influence, but it belonged to a form of Toryism which was willing in the end to recognize facts and to make the best of any situation. When once it was made clear to the Duke that he could not maintain some particular parliamentary position, he had no more hesitation in withdrawing from it than he would have had in his days of battle about retreating from some line of defense which it must soon become impossible to hold. The next most prominent figure in the House of Lords was that of Lord Broom, the great advocate, the great popular agitator, the undoubtedly great orator, a man devoured by a perfect passion for hard work, a man of inexhaustible energy and vast resources, whose weakness consisted in an unconquerable desire to master every subject and to become first in every field. Lord Broom is curiously forgotten by Englishmen and Americans of today, yet his might truly be called a great career. He put himself at the head of every movement for political or social reform. He was an orator of a somewhat rough, unhewn, and even uncouth order, 
but his power over the feelings of his audience was a living fact admitting of no possible question. Another eminent man in the House of Lords, much greater as a mere lawyer than Lord Broome, but with nothing like Broome's political influence, was Lord Lyndhurst. Lyndhurst was on the Tory side of affairs, but he had mental enlightenment enough to inspire him sometimes to go a little in the way of genuine reform. Broome and Lyndhurst, on different sides in politics, had become members of the House of Lords by the same sort of regulation process. Each had served his party well, both as lawyer and as politician, and each, when his party came into power, had been rewarded for his services by the office of Lord Chancellor, which takes with it, although not always at the very moment, a seat in the House of Lords. In the House of Commons, which Mr. Gladstone entered for the first time, the two most remarkable men were beyond all question Sir Robert Peel and the great Irish Tribune Daniel O'Connell. Mr. Gladstone was very soon drawn by instinct and by sympathy into a sort of devotion to Sir Robert Peel. There was a certain affinity between the characters and the gifts of the elder and the younger man. Sir Robert Peel had begun life as a stern and unbending Tory, and naturally a rigid advocate of the system of protection. He had already been won over by the growing force of his own conscientious convictions to become the parliamentary instrument of Catholic emancipation. Later on, as we shall see, he was destined to break away from his Tory party and to establish the system of free trade. Peel was undoubtedly what Mr. Disraeli called him, a great member of Parliament. He was a great parliamentary orator and debater. No man in modern times except Mr. Gladstone alone has ever swayed the House of Commons by argument and by eloquence as Sir Robert Peel did for many years. Like Mr. Gladstone, he had a magnificent voice, a voice strong, clear, flexible, and sweet, making itself heard without strain or effort in the farthest row of the farthest gallery, and at the same time capable of expressing the most delicate tones and semitones of feeling and persuasion. Mr. O'Connell had but lately made his way into Parliament, partly by his own tremendous energy and popularity in Ireland, partly because Peel's conscience had converted him, as I have said, to the principle of Catholic emancipation, and Peel had brought over the Duke of Wellington, and partly because the Duke of Wellington himself had made up his mind that further resistance to Catholic emancipation would mean civil war. And he declared that he had seen war enough in his time and would have nothing to do with civil war anyhow. O'Connell was a great figure in the House of Commons, as he had been a great figure at the bar and on the popular platform. He, too, possessed a voice of marvelous strength and music. Disraeli, in rendering justice to Sir Robert Peel's voice, says that nothing like it had been heard in his time except, indeed, the thrilling tones of O'Connell. Mr. Gladstone was early drawn towards O'Connell by a kind of sympathy, greatly as the two men differed on many political questions. 
Gladstone was in favor of the principle of Catholic emancipation even in his most anti-reforming days of ardent youth, and he found much that was attractive in O'Connell's genial bearing. I talked with Mr. Gladstone some years ago about his early memories of O'Connell, and he spoke with a certain modest gratefulness of O'Connell's kindness to him when a young man just entering on parliamentary life. He told me several stories about O'Connell's earnestness and energy in trying to redress this or that individual grievance, and of the trouble which he had taken for such purposes, and of the generous warmth with which he accepted and put to proof Mr. Gladstone's offer of cooperation. I asked Mr. Gladstone about Mr. O'Connell's eloquence in the House of Commons, and he told me it was so great and so commanding that he was unwilling even to offer a criticism upon it, but that his impression was that of the three great opportunities which O'Connell enjoyed, the bar, the platform, and the House of Commons. The House of Commons was not his greatest success. I asked Mr. Gladstone what he believed to be O'Connell's principal characteristic. He made me an answer in a magnificent phrase, which does honor to the memory of O'Connell. He said, I think O'Connell's principal characteristic was a passion of philanthropy. Lord John Russell was undoubtedly one of the leading men of the new Parliament. He had been the principal worker in the preparation and the carrying of the Reform Bill. He was a man of great ability and of remarkable power as a keen, incisive debater. He never, perhaps, rose to the full height of genuine oratory, but I at least have not heard a man in my recollection who could get the better of him in the keen sword-play of debate. Lord Palmerston, although he had held office more than once, and just at this moment was Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, had not yet made any real mark on public life. Lord Palmerston's influence was of the slowest growth, and when it came at last, it came suddenly and almost as in a flash. Mr. Stanley, afterwards Lord Stanley, and later still Lord Derby, was one of the commanding figures in the House of Commons. He was a man of great energy and eloquence, possessing a rhetorical fluency which had not perhaps been equaled in a modern English Parliament until Mr. Gladstone came to the front. He had a power of phrasing, if I may use such an expression, which told with immense effect on the debates of the House of Commons where a happy expression, an epigram that catches on, an epithet that clings to the public memory, is often much more effective than the soundest argument. Mr. Stanley had on more than one occasion stood up in direct parliamentary antagonism to Daniel O'Connell, and according to the opinion of the majority, had not been worsted. He had taken a great part in the passing of the Reform Bill, although he was an aristocrat of the aristocrats. Later on, he quarreled with the liberals over their policy as regarded the Irish state church, and he afterwards settled down into the position of an avowed Tory. Mr. Disraeli had not yet found a place in the House of Commons, but Macaulay and Grote, the historian of Greece, and Edward Buller, the novelist, were there. The Prime Minister at this time was Earl Grey, 
who had been, one might say, the parent of the Reform Bill. He, of course, sat in the House of Lords, and therefore had little influence over the course of events in the House of Commons. The real leader of an English government must always be in the representative chamber. He is like a commander-in-chief. His directions and his commands must be ready at a moment's notice. Many a crisis occurs in the House of Commons on which the fate of a measure or of a ministry may depend, and when there is no time to send messengers across town to hunt up the nominal Prime Minister, whose House of Lords has probably dispersed hours and hours before. Down to the present day, English governments continue to have nominal Prime Ministers in the House of Lords, but such a Prime Minister, whatever his abilities and his force of character, can, in the very nature of things, be only a figurehead. The condition is like that of a commander-in-chief who is twenty miles away from the field of fight. Probably before long the system will be changed altogether, and it will become a matter of course that the Prime Minister shall be a member of the House of Commons and not the House of Lords. The real Prime Ministers within my memory have been Lord John Russell, Lord Palmerston, Mr. Disraeli, and Mr. Gladstone. All these, of course, sat in the representative chamber. The leader of the House of Commons and of the Liberal Party, at the time when Mr. Gladstone first entered Parliament, was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Viscount Altrip. It is perhaps hardly necessary to explain to most readers that the title, in Lord Altrip's case, as in so many others, was what we call a title of courtesy, and merely indicates that the bearer of it is a son of a peer, and not being a peer himself is free to be elected to the House of Commons. But even very intelligent and well-informed strangers are often much puzzled by our various titles and the difficulty of understanding why this man can and this man cannot be a member of the House of Commons. I remember explaining at some length to a stranger many years ago that Lord John Russell could sit in the representative chamber because he was only the son of a duke and was not a duke himself, and that the Marquis of Hartington was entitled to sit as an elected representative for precisely the same reason. But then my friend asked me, what about Lord Palmerston? He surely cannot have a father living, and how does he come to sit there? The explanation was easy enough. Lord Palmerston's title belonged to the Irish peerage, and an Irish nobleman, if he is not chosen by his peers to represent them in the House of Lords, is quite free to be elected a member of the House of Commons. Lord Altrip, then, at this time, led the government and the Liberal Party in the representative chamber. He was not a man of much statesmanlike ability, but he was a good party manager and when later on the death of his father compelled him to enter the House of Lords, the party suffered by his absence from the real battlefield. Lord Altrip had at this time a considerable majority of the House of Commons behind him, but on the other hand, the Tory minority under Sir Robert Peel was all compact and of one mind, and was willing to follow a leader whose sagacity, strength, and debating power was beyond any question or cavil. 
A writer who describes the events of this opening Parliament says that to one danger indeed ministers were exposed, a danger, however, which they themselves had created. Their performances must either fall greatly short of what they had promised and produce disappointment, or they must throw themselves to support their popularity into a career of dangerous and unconstitutional change on which they did not voluntarily care to enter. The public agitation which they had created and fostered in the great mass of the people for the purpose of carrying the reform bill had produced extravagant expectations that the meeting of a reformed parliament would necessarily be followed by the redress of everything deemed a grievance and the cure of everything called an evil. This is indeed a very correct description of the foremost peril to which the ministers found themselves exposed at the first meeting of that reformed parliament from which so much was expected and so much was dreaded. Mr. Gladstone came quietly and modestly into the debates of the session. He first spoke on what might be called a local rather than a public question. Later on, the government had been strongly pressed by some of its own supporters to deal with the condition of slavery in the colonies. The new colonial secretary, Mr. Stanley, who had just resigned the office of what I may call Irish secretary, brought forward a series of resolutions intended to lead up to the extinction of slavery in England's colonial possessions. It was in the course of the debate that followed that Mr. Gladstone delivered his first really important speech. Yet it was not a speech on the broad and general subject, but rather a reply to a sort of attack made by Lord Howick, afterwards Earl Grey, on the management of Sir John Gladstone's plantation in Demerara. Mr. Gladstone warmly vindicated his father from any charge of countenancing hard dealing with the slaves on his plantation. Everyone felt the most genial sympathy with the young man called on to defend in his first important speech the conduct of his father as an owner of property in slave labor. Two or three weeks after this, Mr. Gladstone spoke again in the same debate, but dealt with the general subject. He expressed just the same views as he had already set out in his election address to the constituency of Newark. He was entirely in favor of the extinction of slavery, but he held that emancipation must come gradually and after proper steps had been taken for the education of the slave. From all that I have read or could hear, I am not inclined to believe that the speeches made anything more than a passing and a personal impression on the House of Commons. Certainly, I have no reason to suppose that they gave to the House any idea of the great powers which the young orator was destined before very long to display. I remember talking years ago to some very old members of the House of Commons who told me that for some time Gladstone's speeches were listened to with only the respect which the House always pays to youth, modesty, and knowledge of the subject under discussion. In Gladstone's early days, as in subsequent days, the House detested bumptiousness, self-sufficiency, cheek, 
ostentation, and the unwarranted assumption of any manner of superiority. Many experienced members of Parliament consider it rather an inauspicious omen if a young man should begin with a very successful maiden speech. The idea is that probably the young man has, to use a colloquial phrase, put all his best goods in the shop window and that nothing is left inside. There are notable instances that way, and notable instances also the other way. The younger Pitt's maiden speech was a great success. The maiden speeches of Sheridan and Disraeli were ghastly failures. There is not much of a theory to be established either way, but I am inclined to think that Gladstone's earlier speeches did not put much of the goods in the shop window and did not indeed give any idea of the wealth of deposit that was in the shop itself. It is a curious fact that Mr. Disraeli, Gladstone's lifelong rival, happening at that time to meet Gladstone in London society somewhere and hearing people talk about him, wrote to his sister and gave her his opinion that that young man has no future before him. It is well to remember that Cicero thought Julius Caesar would never make a soldier. The truth, probably, is that from the very first Gladstone had an instinctive, intuitive knowledge of the conduct which best suits the House of Commons. That conduct, undoubtedly, is the policy of waiting until your real opportunity comes. It is almost always a mistake to try to create an opportunity, to thrust yourself into any controversy in the hope that you can make an eloquent speech. The one fact which young Gladstone soon impressed upon the House of Commons was the fact that he would not intervene in a debate unless he had something to say. Thus, from the very outset, he made himself sure of the ear of the House. Everybody knew that he would not get up to talk for the sake of talking, and that when he had said all that he wanted to say, he would wind up with a few effective sentences and then sit down. We have to take Mr. Gladstone's speeches in this early part of his parliamentary career very much on trust. The reports in Hansard, the semi-official records of the House of Commons debates, give only leading men in the first person, and Gladstone had not at that time advanced to the dignity of the first person. So we read only that the Honorable Member for Newark said that he would not at that late hour of the sitting detain the House too long with the observations he had to make, and so on. We can gather, however, even from these oblique and colorless reports, that Gladstone's style was even then somewhat diffuse and rhetorical, that it was usually very happy in its phrasing, that it was very fluent, and that the manner of the speaker was animated without being too dramatic. Mr. Gladstone, in fact, did not take the House of Commons by storm and did not try to do anything of that kind. His great parliamentary rival, Mr. Disraeli, did a few years later try to take the House by storm, and made a dismal failure of the attempt, and was thrown back consequently for many sessions in his parliamentary career. One especial gift, Mr. Gladstone very soon showed the House, his wonderful skill in the arrangement of figures. He came of a great commercial family, and he might be said to have been cradled in finance. To paraphrase Pope's famous line, 
he lisped in numbers, for the numbers came. He had some early opportunities of showing his capacity for such work, and thus he soon recommended himself to the attention and the favor of Sir Robert Peel. Peel might be said, in a certain sense, to be a Gladstone without imagination. In later years, Gladstone used to be called a pony Peel, so much was he thought to have borne a resemblance to the great free trade minister. Now it is to the praise of Peel to liken him with his pupil Gladstone. So does perspective alter even in the practical life of Parliament. End of chapter 4